Well, this morning we come to Matthew chapter 19. We're continuing this series in Matthew. And this is one of those texts and topics that as you just preach through a book of the Bible like we do primarily, uh, sometimes you come across things that are tough. And so this morning we're going to talk about this issue of divorce. And so I know that everybody in this room probably has been affected by this in one way or another, whether it's been a part of your story, your, your family of origin story, cousins, relatives, and friends. I know that our, in, in our family, I could point to several different people, our family of origins, where, where this is a reality. And so as we do this, just know as every week, we're going to try to be as faithful to the Word of God as we can. But there's no way to, to touch on every little nuance or issue. And so that's not even really the goal. But as we'll say even in the sermon today, there's space to talk about these things in the life of God's people and particularly in our church. So we just ask that the the Lord would help us today to to grow a little more in that together. If you would stand with me now out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to them, to him, Well, why, didn't, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to, them, to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better to not marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now, as we do each week, that you would sanctify us in your truth, for your word is truth. Set us apart to be your people in the world, but not of the world. Help us to be a people of love. Help us to be a people who are a counter-cultural kingdom community that brings good news through the finished and perfect work of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I said these words one, one night to, to Cassie. I said, we just need to find out how to tell them that we're going to quit, that I'm going to quit. This wasn't in this church, but it could be said probably at times at this church. I've at least thought these words. We're in some form of fight, right? If, you, if you've been married and if you're not married, we're going to talk about singleness a little bit today, so don't feel like we're not talking to you too. But if you've been married for any 
form or time, you have thought, this is not what I signed up for. And you've probably had the same fight so many times that it just become, it just feels so pointless. Right? And you get to a certain point and you're like, I, I don't even know what to do. Like, I could even tell you what's going to happen in this conversation for the next five minutes, but I've just did it so many times. I just, I just don't want to do it anymore. And what's hard is when you're a, a, a person, a couple, who is really wanting to follow Jesus and see other people come to know Jesus, to see the mission of Jesus advanced. And you're thinking things like, what in the world am I doing trying to help other people when I can't even get my own stuff together? Like, I can't even manage one relationship. And in the middle of it, all of your own sin is coming out, and you're feeling all that shame and guilt around that, and you're, and you're having all of these thoughts that you wouldn't even maybe even want to say out loud. And you, and you just feel like this fake. As if the mission of making disciples wasn't hard enough, you have to deal with all of these relational, all of these marriage problems in the middle of it. And the reality is, and we know this, is it does not matter what you're walking through in your missional community, what dreams you're trying to dream, people you're trying to reach, people you're trying to love in your fight club, in your everyday workplace, in your neighborhood. The enemy does not stop coming after your marriage. The world, the flesh, and the devil don't say, oh wow, you're really doing great things in the world. I think I'm going to give you some space to do that. No, it, it's actually the opposite. Probably the more that you seem to try to sync your life up with God's mission, the more you can expect the enemy to start to meddle in the mess that can feel like your marriage. And it's so confusing. And then if you're not careful, what you start to do is you start to resent the other person. And you start to think thoughts like this. Just imagine what I could get done in my life if it wasn't for you. Just imagine. If I didn't have to... My mom would get mad at me right now. Just imagine if I didn't have to put up with this crap, what I could think about and have energy to do. Cassie knows I'm not talking just about her. She said worse to me. <laughs> you can come to her and let her d d tell you all of that later. Y'all know it if you've been around her. She's not going to mince words. And so, anyway. But it's true, right? Man, just think of what I could do if it wasn't for this. What we often forget is that marriage, family, singleness, our close relationships are not problems for the mission, but often they are where God leads us to in the mission. And man, that's humbling to accept. None of us in here signed up to do work on ourselves. We served, signed up to go help other people. And it turns out Jesus loves us and our marriage, our homes, our friendships, as much as he loves those people. And it turns out that maybe we can't even really love and reach other people until we learn and are, are, are revealed to be just as needy as all those people too. This is hard. When you get married, you live in marriage, it exposes a lot of blind spots, brokenness, and vulnerabilities. 
you begin to type, become the type of person who says things like, I was not an angry person until I was in this relationship with you. And guess what? Yeah, you were. And you don't want to admit that. You want to blame. You want to excuse. You want to deny. Because to not do that is to deal with the guilt and the shame and the fear that you thought that other person was going to heal you from. And now it's very clear, they're not. You thought you were just marrying another person, but it turns out you were marrying them, their family of origin, their childhood, their brokenness, their pain. You were marrying a person, particularly probably at the age they were married, if they were a male whose prefrontal cortex was not even fully formed yet. You were marrying a person who didn't even really yet know fully who they were. And so when you get to the point and you're like, I don't even know who you are anymore, the reality is they probably, you probably never did and they didn't even really know it, right? We're all learning about who we are. And you thought, by golly, I was the one that read the books. It won't be that way for me. And here we are. And it's the same for singleness. Over time, it reveals the heart. The threatened hopes. And then all the ways you try to compromise and cope to deal with that. It's so hard. And there's a fear that can happen in the middle of this that we have to choose. Are we going to be honest about that stuff or are we going to be on mission with Jesus? And I think part of what's happening in this text is Jesus is saying the answer is yes, we're going to do both. We're going to do both. I'm, he's saying, I know you would like to say that's distracting. Talking about divorce, dealing with little kids. But it's not to me. It's not to me, but we've got to learn to locate marriage and singleness in the journey of Jesus' mission. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we've got to see again that Jesus has time to talk about this. Notice verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from, large, from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So what we're seeing here is this mission is moving on. It's a beautiful mission. People are being healed, right? Not of a minor backache that can't be verified, but like blind people are being given sight. People who can't walk are being able to walk. The dead are being raised. Demons are being cast out. This is amazing. And a part of this, if you, in, the, in the larger context, is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, right? So that's why he's, these locations are being saved. Like he's moving towards the cross for this greatest act of mission ever. If there ever was anybody in the history of the world that says, I don't got time to talk about your marriage problems because I'm doing important stuff. There's people that need to be healed. There's a cross where I need to go to bear the sins of the world. I'm not dealing with this. Jesus stops. And he engages this conversation. Notice verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him in the middle of this glorious, beautiful mission and all this success and healing. And, and they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now the text tests, 
the text tells us here they were trying to test Jesus. They were trying to discredit him. Uh, in the background here, there's two, there's two rabbinic schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai. You can go read more on this if you want to later. But Shammai had a more what we might consider a conservative view that Jesus will kind of more align with here, but not totally, that there was only one cause for divorce, and that was marital infidelity or adultery. But in the school of Hillel, which had been more widely accepted in this culture, which at that time would have been the more progressive view, which is, which is interesting, is that a man could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason he wanted to. In, in one of their documents, it says that he was permitted to divorce in the case of a roving eye for a prettier woman. That's a pretty sad state, right, of, of, of the abuse and legitimate, what we might say, misogyny, sexism, and all of the above. But what the Pharisees are trying to do is they're trying to make Jesus choose sides so that they can turn people against him. Are you with Hillel? Are you with Shammai? And now imagine, we know that Jesus has this band of disciples that aren't merely comprised of the 12 male apostles, but there are a lot of women who are traveling with him as well. Right? And even, in large part, financing the ministry, if you go read in the Gospel of Luke. And he's healing people. And who does Jesus cast demons out of and heal? Is it just men? No. It's women too. So the Pharisees think they're pretty slick here, like they do, right? Like, okay, which, which side are you going to be on? Hillel, Shammai, men or women, they're wanting to distract him. He's doing great kingdom work. It's hard to deny who he is when they're seeing the dead raised, the blind see, and the lame walk. So we've got to change the narrative in the media here and talk about divorce. And what Jesus does, instead of just saying, I don't have time for that, is he knows that this is a situation that really impacts people. It is a real issue. There's names connected to this issue. And how will he respond? Will he say there's no time for that? Or will he say, you know, guys, we really don't need to care about all this theology and just love people by letting them do whatever they want. No, he has time to deal with a hard issue. Imagine a dad that plans a camping or a hiking trip for his family, for his one child in particular, because he want, he, something's happened in this relationship and he wants to mend it. He wants them to have a, a healing experience. And so they're going to go climb this mountain together and through this shared experience, they will reunite in their care and love and affection for one another. And so they start up the mountain, but then the, the child wants to stop and look at the rocks and ask about rock formations. And the dad's kind of annoyed, but he stops and says, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know this, let's get moving. And then, like kids do, in a few moments, what does the kid do? I'm hungry, dad. He wants to stop and eat. He takes out a granola, flips it to him, and says, okay, eat, but we, we need to keep moving. And then, wouldn't you know it, they don't get further along, and the child says, I'm tired. And I need, to, I need to rest. And so dad's about to lose it at this point because his son is ruining his agenda of healing the relationship. We've got to climb the mountain to get healed, to have this shared experience. And then the, the child gets hurt. 
And now they got to go back down the mountain without even reaching the goal of the day. The dad's frustrated because the son is so needy and messed up this great experience he had planned. And now the child feels dad's disappointment and anxiety. Maybe that's how we feel about our issues being raised while on the mission of Jesus. Dad just wants me to get up the mountain. And I'm just a disappointment because I can't even do this thing called marriage or singleness. Probably just holding everybody back. Probably shouldn't bring it up. Probably shouldn't talk about it. Probably shouldn't work on it. There's people to be healed out there. They got way worse problems than me. I should just shut up and be thankful. But Jesus isn't like the Father in this story. What the Pharisees mean for a distraction and a detour to the mission, Jesus, in His amazing awesomeness, brings it into the mission. See, we cannot resent the hard questions, but we've got to see them as a part of the healing mission, the healing quest. When our missional communities and our fight clubs are maybe gearing up to do great things, and then you know just something's going to happen, right? Well, then the relationships in the group, questions are going to be raised, again, maybe in our own families, our own homes. And we're going we're gonna to tend to just get really mad and resentful because there's these interruptions. And what Jesus wants us to say is, I love to do discipleship through in, in the interruptions. That's probably mainly where I do it. It can be frustrating. We want to do big things for the kingdom. Right? And you're like the person who, imagine these, these, these uh, influential leaders of Christianity, whoever they are and however we think about that, they get invited like onto a talk show, right? Tell us about your ministry. And oh, by the way, what's your position on homosexuality? Right? Like, I wasn't here to talk about that. <laughs> right? I was here to talk about, oh, the way, what's your view on women in ministry? Oh, by the way, what's your view on poverty in Indonesia or whatever? And you're just like, blindsided. And if we're not careful, we can get resentful and angry. You want to do great things in a church and somebody raises their hand and says, well, I don't even know if I believe in the Trinity. I'm not comfortable with talking about the atonement that way anymore. Or what do y'all think about end times? Now, we can get frustrated or we can follow the Spirit. There's a tension here. We can't allow people to sabotage us like the Pharisees are trying to do. And at the same time, we have to see what Jesus does. And so that's where we go next. So we see Jesus has time for these things. And in our church, we want to have time too. But the second thing is, is we've got to hear Jesus define marriage in the gospel story of the mission. In verses 4 through 6, we see how Jesus responds. And He responds with the story of God. Verse 4, He answered, Have you not read? What is Jesus rooting this in? What is Jesus' basis of authority? It's the Word of God. Alright? So we're going we're gonna to learn here Jesus' method for engaging hard ethical issues. One particular in our text is the issue of marriage and divorce. So where does Jesus start? Because we're His disciples, right? That means we want to learn. How do you deal with it? First one, have you not read? 
So any tricky issue comes up in our lives, in ethics, in the broader world, just to be a follower of Jesus, what do we got to do? We got to go read the Word, right? Have you not read? There's where we start. And then where does he start in his reading? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? So Jesus says, this is what he's going to do to the, to the Pharisees, you don't start with Deuteronomy. You start with Genesis. It's true in us. We need to see this. We don't start even with the Apostle Paul. We start with Genesis. Right? We've got to learn how to read the story. This is how Jesus approaches these things. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So, who, who, whose word? God's word. Whose creation? God's creation. Whose story? God's story. Who created biological sexuality and the gender of male and female? God did. Alright? It's not a social construct. Right? It's, it's just based on God's word. God's creation. Jesus is pointing us to that. And then he goes on to say, verse 5, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So who not only created sexuality and gender? God. Who created marriage? God created marriage. He created marriage between a man and a woman. This is his institution. This is his design. It is not something that just happened in the history of the world as humans said, what do we want to do about these relationships so there's some type of social protections? And we see in this that he created it as a covenant. This might be lost to some of us, but this language of holding fast, in the old King James, this leave and cleave, this is covenantal relationship. Marriage was not designed as a contract that you enter in with someone. It was a covenant relationship. Malachi 2.14 says this, She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Proverbs 2.17 again makes it clear, forsake, who forsakes, speaking of, of leaving someone who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Marriage is created by God as a covenant between men and women, but also a covenant between men and women and God. So this is why Jesus says this, what he says in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's a covenant relationship. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a magnificent and mysterious union. It's hard to wrap our heads around two becoming one in the eyes of God. So as one commentator said, when we think of divorce, what we're thinking of is, is not merely a breach of contract. You're thinking of it as an amputation. Like, we've become one. And we're going to see in a minute, sometimes you have to amputate something to keep it alive so that you don't die. But you don't just amputate things willy-nilly, right? If you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, I, my finger's hurting, and he's like, amputation. Right? You're like, whoa, no, 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 no. Let's try everything else in the world that can be tried before we go start cutting parts of my body off. 
This is what Jesus is saying, like, God has brought you together, right? To sever what God has joined together is, is to bring damage and hurt to yourself. And so they have their rebuttal. Verse 7. Oh, this is, I wish we had more time. This is just such a case study in good hermeneutics. That is a good way to read the Bible, right? Because you're going to have all these people saying, well, what about what the law says? I wish we had more time for that. But here Jesus goes, snapshot. They said to him, why did Moses then command one to give a servant of divorce and send her away? They're saying Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 14, if you want to go look that, Moses gives these ways that divorce is to be handled. But if you go and read, it's not a command. It's a concession. One use of the law was to say, you guys are not living how I designed you to live. And so I'm going to give you some laws to restrain you from making a bad thing even worse. If you go and read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, these provisions were given actually to provide protection, particularly even for women. But what is Jesus' response then? As he said, it's because of your hardness of heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, how do we read our Bibles? We go to creation. What was God's design? And then when we come to the law, we understand how it's operating in a way sometimes just to restrain evil people from doing things worse. I, I like the way one commentator said this. He said he bought a car one time and it had a book of instructions. And it told you things to do in case you were in an accident. Call the police, make a note of what happened, write down registration numbers of others' cars involved. And there was a section on how to cope if the car began to skid or did other dangerous things. He said, such a section is surprising because you don't really expect the manufacturers to, to expect you or want you to have a wreck or to drive dangerously. And guess what? They don't. They want you to drive safely, free of trouble, anxiety, and danger. But sometimes people do get into difficult situations. It's important to know what to do if the occasion arises. He says it would be absurd to suggest that the people who wrote the instruction book were actually hoping for such things to happen or encouraging them to happen. Which is what was going on in Jesus' day. Men just saying, I'm tired of her. And being able to divorce and walk away and leave, leave this woman in that current day and time with no, no social protection and with this sort of scar on her while the man just goes and remarries somebody else as if it was no big deal. The Pharisees actually have said, we think Moses is saying, here's an, here's an option. So he says it this way, the Pharisees seem to have thought that about the very existence of legislation about divorce, that Moses was quite fine with it taking place. Since there's a law that tells you how to do it, they seem to reason that must mean it's all right. But Jesus shows the flaw in their thinking by pointing them back to their original intention. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, here's how to have an accident. But rather, when you drive your car, take care to not have an accident, but if it tragically occurs, here's how to deal with it. So Jesus' bottom line, verse 9, is, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another commits adultery. What Jesus is saying, no, you men in particular in this situation, you can't just divorce your wives for any reason. The only reason that you can do this when it's important to get the manual out is when there has been a death brought to the covenant. When that covenant has been breached, and how is that covenant breached? That covenant has been breached when that one flesh union has been violated by bringing another person into that union. There's a death that happens there. It doesn't mean that you have to divorce. Certainly don't think we would encourage that, but it means that sadly, this is a wreck. Amputation should still be a last case scenario. But Jesus is saying it may happen. Now at this point, we could say a little more, a lot more, I mean, I'm going to say a little more. It's 1 Corinthians 7, I believe, also gives another reason, and that is abandonment or desertion. And that is that someone has made this covenant commitment to a person. They may not have broken it explicitly through adultery, but they have abandoned the relationship. They have deserted it. You need to go read 1 Corinthians 7 and work through that. I, this is just my personal opinion now, which a lot of this is, but I try to be faithful, but I'm not speaking for the church when I say this, as if anybody can make that distinction, is it does feel like, though, that that abandonment or desertion can happen not just when somebody, like, just leaves the state, but even if they're like, I'm going to stay in this house, but I'm going to continue to abuse you. So they've not just deserted, they may not have deserted the premises or abandoned the premises, but they've abandoned the promises of the covenant, and they're abusing their spouse, whether physically or through substance abuses. I believe at that point, too, you also there could be an argument made, and that's up for a debate, that there's this death that's been brought. And so the language that is used in 1 Corinthians 7 and Romans 7 is that they're, they're no longer bound because death has taken place. But regardless, in our culture of no-fault divorce... Some of you are thinking, I sound like a super liberal by throwing that in there. But we all sound pretty legalistic to our world, right? Because we live in a world where you're going to hear this. If you're not happy anymore, you need to get out of that. You deserve to be happy. Instead of acknowledging that this is a much bigger issue than that. And maybe the path to joy is not a path to a premature amputation. So what do the disciples have to say about this? Well, thank goodness we've got these boneheads that say out loud what a lot of us think, right? Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> if you mean that's the only way I can get out of this, then I don't want to do it. So that seems sad, right, that they would say that. But let's give these guys a little grace. Maybe they're actually feeling the weight of it too. Like we don't understand covenants like these men and women did in the ancient Near East. They know when they hear covenantal language that this means they got a whole story, right, that they're very deeply embedded in that like things get really messy and it is really hard to stay faithful. 
So these guys are like, I don't even know that I want to do it anymore. It doesn't say if Peter said it or not, but we know he's married at this point, and who knows what he was thinking. But they get it, and so Jesus' shocking response in verses 11 and 12 He said, well, not everybody can receive this saying, but to whom it is given. And then he goes on here to talk about what I think is singleness for their eunuchs who have been so from birth, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and their eunuchs who have made made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. What he's saying is you may not, if if you commit to marriage, you need to realize like that's a grace of God that empowers you and enables you to do that, to enter this covenant relationship where you commit to love this person till death do you part. But for some of you, it may be given to be single, right? And he uses this image, this metaphor in that day of, of, the, of the eunuch because this, this, this was a, a, a drastic picture of someone who was either born without reproductive capabilities Someone who had those reproductive capabilities taken away from them. The kings would often do this to servants, right? They don't want their servant being tempted to mess around with their wife. And there are these stories. And all of a sudden now what was super hard and we don't know what to do or how to make it is, is, is brought this person alive and, and given us some direction and hope. And the doctors discovered that that's exact, these Disney stories and psalms had gave him, in his autism, these categories for communication and relating in a world that he couldn't in any other way. Life animated. I've only seen the trailer, but that's it. <laughs> I, I think that's maybe kind of what Jesus is wanting to do for us. Right? Like... You get into marriage, you get in these relationships, you get down the road a little bit in your singleness, and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to communicate. I don't know how to locate myself. I don't know how to think about this. And Jesus is saying, here's the story. Here's the story. Step into my story. Because it's not just a story of a mess. It's a story of my faithfulness. Your marriages and your singleness are not, they do not have to continue to be defined by the story of your parents' marriages, your grandparents' marriages, your great grandparents' marriages. Your story of singleness doesn't have to be defined by some, uh, some, some image that you feel like that you're like a lesser person. It doesn't have to be defined by our cultural stories that just look at us in this sort of naturalistic, Darwinian thing where all we are is a bunch of animals. And, and we just need to figure out how to enjoy one another physically. And we just need to get, figure out who can give us the latest chemistry hit in our brains. Because, you know, that's all love is in that story, right? All love is in that story is we're just a bunch of accidents that showed up here. If that's the story you're in, yeah, go do whatever makes you happy today because that's it. And that story gets in our brains whether we realize it or not. And it tugs at us when this other person just won't change. And the reality is, in a lot of ways, guess what? They're not going to change. That's really hard when you get to that point in your marriage. 
And if you're sucked in by all the stories of the world, then you will feel lost, you will check out, and you will go find some way to find relief through some type of addiction. And it oftentimes will be functional. You can keep your job, look like you're doing great at life, and you will be a miserable Christian. But if we step into the story of God, we step into a story that shapes our singleness and our marriage through someone else who is holding us and who loves us. And so this is the end. This could have been a whole other sermon, but I think it goes together for the sake. We've got to trust Jesus to care for us when we're at our lowest places on this mission. Verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 18, we remember Jesus has been playing with this picture of children as the little ones, and he's interchangeably calling his disciples little ones. And he's saying, if you want to be my disciples, you've got to be willing to take on the status of the lowly, of the least, of those who have no status in society, and trust me to give you all that you need. Well, the disciples have missed the point, as usual, gives us grace. And even after Jesus said all of that, when they bring Jesus' children, they rebuke them. Why? Guess what? Jesus has more important things to do than care for powerless people. Children were being seen even below those with the the diseases and deformities, right? Like, get out of here. And so what does Jesus do? The disciples rebuke the people and Jesus in his way rebukes the disciples and says, don't hinder those little ones to come to me. I got time for them. Some of you in here may be children of divorce and somebody didn't have time for you. But Jesus sure enough does. You're not a burden, you're not a problem to him. Some of you in here right now be thinking, I wish I could get a divorce. But then he preached this sermon, now I even feel worse about wanting it. And you just feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And Jesus says, I love you. I love you. I don't want you to hide that and run away. I don't want you to leave your spouse. But I want you to know I can be everything for you that they never can be. I'm not going to give up on you. I know those wicked thoughts you think. I know those thoughts like my dear wife told me one year. I've told you all this a hundred times, but it's just classic. She said, you know, it's been a long time since I wished you were dead. (laughs) So when you're a pastor's wife, it's even more complicated, right? (laughs) Happy birthday to me. Uh, Hey, that's, that's real life, isn't it? We can come and pray to Jesus about those things. And we can love each other only because of He loved us. See, that's where the power comes in all this. The power doesn't come with us coming out here and saying, well, Jesus says I can't get a divorce. I'm just stuck. The power comes from seeing how we got this guy who's having divorced us. (laughs) I mean, how many days have I ignored him? How many days have I taken even his scriptures and tried to make them fit my narrative? 
How many times have I said, I got better things to do? How many times have I committed adultery against him? If he just says, I love you, son, and I love you this much, I will die for you. I'll die for those sins. All these wounds we bring into our marriages, right? Somebody said 80% of the problems we had in our marriages, they existed before we even met that person we married. All that stuff in our singleness, all those hurts, he, won't, he says, I, I die to heal you from those wounds. And all those lies of the enemy that we just aren't enough or never will be enough because our marriage is how it is or because our singleness how, is how it is. Jesus says, I want to tell you the truth and set you free. You are a son, you are a daughter of God. And you matter. And in my grace, not only will I step into that mess, but I'm actually even going to use you on my mission while you're in the middle of it. Don't let the enemy put you in a corner. Let, him, let the Spirit bring you into the light through the gospel. It's an old ministry joke. I'd love ministry if it wasn't for the people. Well, they are the people ministry, right? We know that. Well, how about marriage? Some of us would be like, I would love marriage if it wasn't for my spouse. Well, they are the marriage. I'd love my singleness if it wasn't for me. Well, you, you are the single. Marriage is not a necessary evil. Singleness is not a necessary evil for that matter. These are not problems to figure out so we can get on with our lives. These things are our lives. And God wants to use them to bring life to the world. But we must locate marriage and singleness in the journey of Jesus' mission. Father, we thank you for the good news of your covenant faithfulness to us. As we come to the table, help us to taste and see that. Remind us again, Spirit, as we come to the table of things that we need to deal with. Help us to examine ourselves for sin that's hidden. For sin against others or ways we may need to leave the altar and go seek reconciliation. Help us maybe be spurred by this time today to have a long conversation with our spouse about how we love them and don't just want to tolerate them. Help those who are single and maybe wrestling with that to know how deeply loved and equally important they are in the kingdom as we see that you gave your body and blood for each of us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.